Yeah, shut, shoot down that helicopter, Moz. We got a podcast to record. and welcome to the monster lore tour paranormal deep dives from the edge of nowhere podcast i'm your host jeremy carr here along with my co-host in the wyatt earp to my doc holiday mr matt ozero aka the moz how are we doing today moz you know no complaints and that uh, that opening you know it's okay well i am your huckleberry so i thought it was fitting I thought okay. <laughs> I thought an okay rating was fitted for that. I just had to go and ruin it, didn't I? I, I ruined it first. You know, we ruin things very quickly yeah. together. It's like a race to the yeah. to the bottom with us, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! But anywho, we are here with our much anticipated, long awaited airing of our Stanley Hotel interview episode. Mm-hmm. The family friend Tristan this is actually the very first thing I believe that we recorded for this podcast it's like almost two years old this interview Oscar Freeland Stanley was alive when we recorded this the first time uh, <laughs> okay maybe not the audio is not great so forgive us that a little bit like I yeah. said it was the very first thing we ever recorded it was on zoom didn't really know what we we're doing uh, it's a little echoey and stuff it's not Bad. So we know what we're doing now? More so than that. More so. Yeah. More so. Okay. Not entirely yet. That'll yeah. probably take a couple of more years yeah. but of actually doing it. But we're getting there. We're getting there. Anywho, let's get into it here. Why don't you get us started off with the prerequisites for this episode there, Moss? Yeah, if you have not heard, episode 12 is an intro to this interview episode, and we did that specifically because... Our first interview, audio bad or not, was really great. It was a surprise, and we decided to go back, research the Stanley, and do a little bit of an opening, and it turned out to be a very fun episode. I was pleasantly surprised. It was a very inspiring interview. Um, Tristan had a great memory of the thing. It's it's an impactful memory for him with his family, and he's a great storyteller. He really knows how to present. Yeah. I didn't even do background music because he just has this flow where the story just keeps going and yeah. I couldn't even tell where like starting and ending points were. So no background music here either, but I think he just carries it so well. You're not even going to notice. And we may get him back because he said something that relates to one of my weirdness and he this might not be the last time we hear from him. There there are other stories there, yeah. So so we could circle back around to, to that one. He is such a great storyteller. I'd love to have him back on again. I do have some old business though. My old business is you kind of called me out because I said, it's about a century years, year, you know, the Stanley Hotel is about a century old. 
and you wanted more specifics than that. Yeah. Uh, which kind of wrecks my jokes. If you go back and listen to that, don't kind, cover kind your ears when I say the joke. Well, you were yeah. criticizing my editing process, so I had yep. to give it back to you. Yeah, well, <laughs> you were right. It's actually 114 years old. Yeah, there you go. Definitely a little and, older than uh, we thought. And 116 when the time this airs. Oh, dude, you got <laughs> did me. it again. Now you have to get me back. Damn it. This is how it starts. I will get you, Moz. Uh, right. Meet me behind the corral, you know. All right. Well, anywho, let's uh, get into the meat of it here then. Oh, we're on the same side. Yeah. On that oh, wait. One. I'm supposed to do this thing. While you're here, real quick, like, subscribe, share, ring the bell, follow, whatever the buttons may be on whatever it is you're listening on. Uh, you can get our member section at patreon.com slash monster lore tour. We do a side trail for every episode, and they're getting bigger and better as we go. And our website, monsterloretour.com, will take you to all the links for all the different platforms we're on. So with that, let's get into the meetup. Well, the meet to start, you're about to hear a really phenomenal interview. And again, it was our first and it was very exciting. And we were just getting our, our feet wet in that area. But at the same time, we had a wonderful interview. There was a few details that were kind of muffled a little bit. And, uh, you know, Tristan mentions in the interview that the uh, third floor is where the children were, and it's actually the attic is the fourth floor. Fourth floor, right. Uh, Lord Dunraven's room, I think. Uh, I'm, I'm not actually sure because even trying to check it, we found multiple 401, 407, take your pick. Yeah, trying to research this stuff for this as the follow-up. Yeah. Showed me just how right you were when you said the numbers are all yeah, don't messed add up. Because some add places up. they say Lord Dunraven's 401, some yeah. places it's 407, some places the maid's room is 407, uh, the fourth floor is also where the kids are. But it's like, it's almost like you got to go there and yeah. actually do it to really know. Like the only thing everybody agrees on is that the Stephen King room is 217. Like right. That's the only thing everybody can agree on. Yep. And if you go to the Timberline, it doesn't even exist. They made it go away. Right. The only they, one we could remember. They can't even agree <laughs> on whether the maid died in the explosion or not. You know? Yeah. I mean? like, the paper, the mantra. Well, yeah. you know, exactly. But at, the other piece of that is Tristan said the maid's room was 119, and that we believe is 407. He also said the maid committed suicide. We couldn't find that. I think it's she's, he's talking about the fire, the maid that either right. died or stayed right. on or... Was yeah, so a little bit of con convoluted stuff there, but otherwise he was he was very good with his recollections. Yeah, the, as far as the, the feeling and what he saw, and some of the details might be lost to the fog of time, right. but he really the experience experience itself, itself yeah. uh, was phenomenal. That's what really matters, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that you know at, he was nine at the time, or between yeah. nine and eleven is what he said. Yeah, something like that. And you know he we nine would or ten. we would not have done as good a job today. And we are over no, that age, no. both of us. Yeah, because he was, I believe he was 17, 18 at the time of the interview. Yeah. So he's like done with college now with the, <laughs> how long ago he recorded yeah. this thing. But, but uh, yeah, he, he did a great job of really presenting the, the whole feel of the thing. Let's get to it. Before, yeah, let, before we ramble on too long about it, let's jump into it and we'll see you on the other side of the interview. Let's go to Tristan here. How are you doing, Tristan? Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, it's definitely a trip getting back into the whole Stanley Hotel experience. It has been a very, very long time since I thought about that. 
And okay. so, uh, so this isn't a story you tell too often. How, how many times would you say, or let's start with this actually, how long has it been since this occurrence? Um, if I had to guess, it's been about t- anywhere between nine and 12 years now. And I'm 19, so I was anywhere between eight and 10 at the point when this uh, all happened. A, a pretty typical age, actually. Kids seem to be much more open to And they could have had stuff. the tricycles if they'd actually reported this earlier. <laughs> I'll buy you a tricycle when we're done. I know that's what you're getting all at. Right, right. <laughs> you just want the tricycle now. I know. He wants it real bad. Uh, I can't fall over. As so, so you've had this story a long time. Happened when you were a kid. How often have you repeated it? How many times would you say you've told this story to somebody? In actuality, I haven't told this story very many times. I shared it as an excited kid with a couple of family members, maybe a couple of friends at the time, Um, but I have never really sat down and told this story anywhere. I have never specifically dedicated time beyond that. Yes, I was at the Stanley Hotel and we stayed in a couple spots and some weird things happened. Um, It has never been a full retelling like something um, I'm trying to do here today. That's that's cool, man. Well, thank you for bringing it to us. I I appreciate you trusting us with this and and being willing to bring a story that you you don't usually tell to to the podcast here. It it really is appreciated. Of course. Um, I do not mind sharing. So start telling your story. If we have questions, we'll jump in and we'll keep it kind of freeform. How's that? For sure. Sounds good to me. What got me into the Stanley Hotel, the whole reason why me, my dad and my mom all went was because ever since I was young, I have been reading Stephen King. Uh, The first series that I read was Harry Potter, third grade. And immediately after that, it evolved into Stephen King and Stephen King. I started reading constantly. I I read a lot of that at that age as well. Like fifth grade, I got into it. Ours was reversed though. We started with Stephen King and then we went to Harry Potter. So we're we're like digressing, but at some point we were... At a crossroads. Intersected. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of course, teachers were horrified, but you know, once I actually read The Shining, and um, also after watching the movie, I watched the movie and then read the book. I very much enjoyed the book a lot more. Um, and the movie me did too. leave me with uh, a lot of trauma from that shower, but <laughs> right. we'll get into that shower you later. You and me both, brother. <laughs> oh yeah. It took me till I was 16 to, or yeah, till I was 16 to stop opening the shower curtain and leaving it open. But of course, the reason why we ended up going is because my, uh, my dad, he came to me all wide eyed. He's like, so I know you've been reading King. I know you just read The Shining. How about you mean your mom? go up to Estes Park and stay there. Nice. And of course, I'm into it, fully into it. And so we pack up all our stuff and we head on up to the Stanley and driving right up to it. It's it's right like the scene out of the movie. You drive up to it up this big, long road and you get to see it. And there's that little bit of snow, that little bit of green and coming through it all. It was very much a, a, a magical storybook moment I- driving up there. But we go up there and uh, they start explaining to me some of the stuff we're going to do. You know, we'll we'll have our normal ghost tour, but we are going to be staying in the hotspot rooms. We reserved those um, throughout. So you went full on. We went full on. Yeah. First day was ghost tour, um, but then staying in a normal room. And then the rest of the week was staying in the three different hotspots of the maid's room. um, 119. Lord Dunraven's room, and we even got to stay in the King's suite as well, Stephen King's suite. You, you um, got to like switch rooms every day? 
yeah, we swapped between every day. We res- we reserved a different room specifically to stay in these hotspots and try really and get an actual genuine experience. Um, and my dad also, being the persuasive man he was, he managed to pull a few strings and uh, allow us access to some areas at certain times that were not really kosher for the general public. I believe since you've been up there, you know, there's that secondary building, that grand hall, and there's that piano up on a stage. Um, That is kind of where a lot of this begins. After going through the ghost tour, um, experiencing that, uh, having them tell us the stories of how the place came to be, the history of when it burned, um, what happened to the children on the third floor specifically, we spent our daytime up there and just kind of exploring, exploring the hotel. I left a handful of scattered marbles hidden under a couch up on the third floor that day. And uh, not too much happened that I can remember, but when the nighttime hit, it was about 11 o'clock at night. Everybody was bedding down in the hotel. It was becoming very quiet. And my dad, he, uh, he wakes me up from dozing and he says, hey, I asked some of the guys if we can go and explore the Grand Hall in the middle of the night here. So you were doing a full-on ghost investigation at the Stanley Hotel at like nine years old. Yep, I was doing it with my dad. We were both very fascinated and uh, had a very firm belief in the paranormal. And we wanted to truly try and experience it. And we did. We really did. Um, And our first night there, while it was a small event, going into that Grand Hall, it was pitch black, except for this flittering moonlight coming through those big, tall windows way up above the stage and everything. But we walk in there and we start looking around and there is a very moody, quiet tone. It is silent, silent. Even the footsteps seem to be quiet. And we're walking through and my dad and I don't say a word until we get into the grand hall and start to approach the stage. And at the time I had been learning piano as a child along with uh, guitar and he, uh, he taps me on the shoulder and he just quietly murmurs, Hey, go play something. And I, I kind of look at him for a moment and I, I rub my head and I, and uh, my dad, he, he was smart. He planned ahead. And I was like, I don't know what to play. And of course he produces my music book. Um, and I had a lot of favorite pieces and a couple of fairly complex ones for my age. And I pick out my favorite and I go up right onto that stage. And compared to now, when I actually did legitimate orchestra and performed on stage, the feeling was very much the same. And it wasn't because my dad was there watching. Walking up onto that stage felt very much the same, even in darkness, like it would be when you are under the stage lights and the seats are full, packed house. It felt very much the same. And I take a seat and I sit down at the piano and I settle in. I can't remember the name of the piece, but I, uh, I dig into it and I really, really play my heart out. I perform into this dead, empty air that was just almost silent and oppressive in the dark. But as I played, even with the minimal light, I was purely focused. The music flowed. It was a, it was a performance. Nothing quite happened. No standing ovation, of course, came when I finished. But both of my dad were smiling, these big smiles in the dark. And I pick up my book and we're turning around to leave. We've looked around the building. I've played on the stage. And as we're leaving, 
that very quiet atmosphere seems to have been lifted. It was almost more full of life after playing. And the reason why that is more specific is as we're walking out, I remember directly behind me and I can almost feel it on the back of my neck. I was walking side by side with my dad heading for that door through the grand ball away from the piano. And we hear this happy, this happy, thankful sigh just right behind our heads, just right behind us in almost silent, breathy. Thank you. And we, we hear it and he looks at me and he's dead silent. He's sitting there looking at me and he finally murmurs after about five seconds of just listening to the air after we heard that and we're staring at each other. And he says, you heard that too, right? Of course I go, uh-huh. And we quickly leave. We, we, we made our effort. We were there for what we were supposed to be there for. And it was time for us to go. And we headed back inside and went back to bed And that was kind of it uh, for that day. But as the second day came around, uh, the first room we stayed in, the first hot spot was the maid's room. And this was where my mom had her experience. She was very, uh, a very skeptical woman. Um, She didn't really have a belief one way or the other, but was open to the idea. And we go and stay in this room all day. And we went and explored, went and had food, talked to the people. Um, I believe that the ghost tour had a second part. It's hard to remember that. But day two is really where I was starting with. Um, We moved into the room with the maid. Um, I believe that maid uh, killed herself. I believe she committed suicide um, in the bathroom, specifically the tub of that room. And we stayed in that room for most of our day. And we went out, explored the hotel some more, uh, continued on through. But it once again came around to midday or mid-afternoon when uh, we decided, hey, let's leave our room messy um, and put the do not disturb sign on so no actual maids come around to clean it. And we left a bunch of stuffed animals around. We left a couple of blankets. We left things, uh, you know, just a little bit messy, but nothing too horrible, um, but very clearly disheveled, adjusted. Um, we came back after our lunch. It was only about a, an hour and a half period between when we left and left the room messy and when we came back. And when we came back, the do not disturb sign was still there. We didn't tell anybody we left. We just did our thing. And we walk back in and every single one of my stuffed animals had been aligned on this ottoman in front of the bed. Every single one was stacked up, facing out, very neatly organized, very neatly put together. And there was one specific little teddy bear, this little brown spiky thing that my mother had brought. Um, And it was sitting right in the middle of the floor, facing directly ahead to the door all on its just sitting there while the rest of the animals were on the ottoman. The bed had been completely made. The blanket, um, the couple of them we had thrown onto the floor had been laid out and put on the bed, completely put together. The room looked like we were just getting in there and it felt very, very homely with the effects that we had brought and the way that they had been displayed to us. That's amazing. And I got to point out a pretty distinct irony in this. A cleanly poltergeist. Yeah, very much so. A poltergeist comes into your nice, nice clean house and messes everything up. 
this poltergeist came into your hotel room and cleaned up your mess. Mm-hmm. Like the most hopeful poltergeist I've ever heard of in my life. What about the marbles? Were the marbles still in play in this part? Oh, yeah. We'll you get to the marbles. marbles. We'll, we'll get to the marbles. The marbles are has to come fine. back into it or you wouldn't have said it. Oh, yeah. Don't worry. Don't worry. We'll get there. But it, uh, we, we, of course, all see this and we all just kind of look at each other and go, huh, that's that's a little strange. Um, and then we begin some more exploration, uh, a bit more of talking to the people, just looking around to the hotel, um, exploring the grounds even, and taking a look out back um, with my dad. But both uh, suddenly he perks up as we're out back after we had seen our room put back together. And he goes, we left those marbles, dude. And we head our uh, head on up to the third floor. And of course it had been a whole day. It is somewhat explainable that something could have happened, but we go up to the third floor and I look under this couch. It was a very, very small gap. It was something that my dad's hands could not fit under. The grown full man's hands could not get under, but my smaller hands could. And I just left these marbles kind of scattered and tucked away under there where you couldn't see them unless you were down on the floor. You had to look under this couch to see them. And I had left them just kind of scattered under there and we go up there and I take a peek under just to see what happened. And in a straight, perfect row, about 13 different marbles, all in a line, they were just left under this couch perfectly in a line. They didn't roll. They didn't even move as I was looking there. It was like the floor was perfectly flat and they were perfectly aligned. And I remember they were all cat's eye marbles specifically blue and green can i, can I clarify for a second so when Absolutely. you put when you put them under there you saw the way they scattered and they stopped moving um scatter pattern is that what you're saying because i mean if you just threw them under there is that there there was it no be a divot little crevice, yeah, crevice in the floor maybe. no when i originally scattered them under there i just kind of gave them a little roll and they naturally had their momentum and kind of bumped around a little bit but they didn't settle in any pattern. They were all very much completely so random. You saw just them scattered. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I just kind of tossed a handful under and watched where they went. And any we, that we, on the side, we just like to double check for you know. Yeah, yeah. Jeremy know. can't get into the groove either, so he relates to that. <laughs> I absolutely understand. But yeah, there was no natural groove to the floor. They did not try and roll out of the couch. They weren't trying to form in a ball and some divot in the floor. They were just scattered under there and they stayed still when I left them. And when me and my dad left to have the experience in the ballroom, um, they were believed to be as we left them, but we go back to see this the next day and these marbles cat's eyes, and it went from blue to green, a very smooth sea green transition. And I remember that specifically because they were lined up in such a way that it was blue to green to blue to green to blue to green in that perfect straight curvy cat's eye line. Wow. The marbles were positioned that the eyes were almost facing out from wow. under the couch, peering wow. out. Um, and and ordered by color, so that there's no way that happened randomly. No, no, way. there there's no way. And either some maid or some other guest was playing a trick or it was one of the spirits of the children that was left behind. And I do have my beliefs that it very well could have been that as those spirits were observed and recorded and uh, described to be very playful, to be non-threatening, but definitely mischievous. But these marbles 
had been lined up perfectly. I look up at my dad and I'm just kind of, I've got this scared, somewhat wide-eyed, but very excited grin. And I tell him, get down here and look. And it takes him a second, but he looks under there and it's just flabbergasted, completely just, what the hell am I looking at here? And of course, we take a minute to look at it. We take a couple of photos um, and we even sat down to try and do some audio recordings in that area as well at that time. I know we took photos and if I can find them, I, I will gladly send them to you, but they may be lost to time as of course my father passed some time ago. Um, sorry about that. And I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, oh no, yeah. My, my dad, while there were issues, a lot of personal things with that, um, my dad at least did make an effort constantly throughout my life to give me cool experiences and to truly see life and experience things that no other kid was really going to get at that age or even at an, as an adult. Yeah. He tried to give me these experiences to the fullest. And that was definitely very true for this whole Stanley experience. And continuing on with the story, uh, I collected my marbles after a little bit, after we tried to record a few audios, took some pictures of them um, and kind of hung out in the area, tried to reach out to anything that could have been there. I don't think we got much of anything and I've always been talkative. So it very well, I polluted the audio with those recordings, but this is where a, a more secondhand story comes into play is by this point, it's once again, it's starting to close down. Nighttime has set in, people are going to bed. Uh, me and my mom, my dad, we all go to stay in this room. And um, my mom was sleeping on the left side and her head would be up against the wall, of course, and forward and to the left, uh, forward and to the left, there would be the doorway to the bathroom where this maid had supposedly committed suicide. Um, and my dad was on the far right. I was put in the middle, in the middle of the night. I'm not sure if she mentioned what time it was or if I just don't remember or if she even knew what time it was um, when this happened, but it is the dead of night. Both me and my dad are sound asleep. We've always been fairly heavy sleepers, but we're dead asleep and my mom, her eyeballs pop open. I remember her describing this. It was very visceral. Her eyeballs pop open and she starts looking around and she feels like there's someone else um, in the room. And she was very used to having certain waking nightmares about not being able to open her eyes, but there's people around her, things like that. But she, she described this as a very different feeling. There was someone else, but it wasn't threatening or scary, but there you're was sure something. Are you sure you didn't jump too many rooms and you were like in someone else's room because your dad <laughs> seemed, <laughs> you seemed no, to jump not. around a little bit. We have to rule that out. We have to rule that out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We were we were in the maid's room. It was right then and there. We stayed there. I remember it was second day. We stayed in there. That was our first hotspot room that we stayed in. But she wakes up and she's looking around and she looks over towards the bathroom and the door is just slightly open. And as she's looking at it and she's staring very, very slowly, this very strange white shade, this almost amorphous white blob that was almost head-shaped, kind of leans out of the doorframe, just, just barely looking out and looks out at her. She could feel it looking at her, and she was looking right at it. And she stared for just a few moments, and then it was gone. 
It just disappeared. It didn't duck away. It just disappeared. No, it just kind of fizzled out. Just uh, gone. Has your mom much, had like, these hypnopompic, hypnagogic hallucinations? It's very common. I've had them. I'm just wondering. If, I'm wondering if she's had other sleeping upon sleeping and upon waking hallucinations. Um, she hasn't had anything that has been specifically hallucinogenic. I would say nothing that has been. She did not. Nothing she would equate to hallucinating or something that seemed very real. A lot of her issues, like what I was describing with that uh, somewhat of a waking nightmare where there are people around her and she can't open her eyes. Um, right. it, it very much is something she knows is a nightmare. She is not yeah. awake when she wakes up and remembers having that dream. It is very yeah, much a dream typical night dream. terror kind of stuff, but nothing. Yeah, that's actually, nothing weird that's actually D level. We'll talk about this later. He's the expert on these things. But no, we'll get into that. The, the hypnopompic and the <laughs> hypnagogic stuff, upon waking, upon sleeping. I've had these and it's usually associated with the end of the bed and or or somewhere in your periphery and i've had them myself there but they're more realistic but you're prone to them and you have them and it's recurring not the same necessary theme but if you have one if she just had one of these there without ever having anything else that's very different and yeah no she never had anything like this because her only it was she had a very that dream that i was describing was um, one of her two recurring nightmares and the other one was the house burning down, but it was never anything like someone else is there. It is not, her eyes can open up. She is not awake. Right. Right. The, com very, yeah. the commonality very... is if you don't think it's real, it's just a nightmare. If you think it's someone's in the room and it's a presence, you're talking about more parasomnic. You're talking about more hypnopompic. It sounds mm -hmm. like you, you distinguish that. It's okay. Yes. I don't know what those words mean either, but he's going to cover them in a future episode. Yeah. yeah. She very much <laughs> made it clear to both me and my dad that this was something very different than anything she had experienced before. Um, and it was, she told me the story later on towards the end of her life uh, and compared it with that dream. And once again, completely different animals because she woke up, her eyes opened. She was awake. She knew she was awake because right. she looked over and checked on us and especially checked on me as she was looking around the room. And this doorway, this doorway to the bathroom was not near to the edge of the bed. It was almost in the corner away from it. It was very off against the far left wall while the bed was centered in the middle against the back wall. Wow. Um, so it was not periphery. It was a dead head turn stare, a direct, I am looking over to the left at this doorway and I can see this thing looking out at me and then it disappeared. And I, the way she described it was after it disappeared, she very slowly, she felt the presence almost leave. It, it felt like she wasn't being watched anymore and she fell back asleep. She remembers distinctly going back to sleep after this. So the waking up and going back to sleep is very much different than anything she had ever experienced and why she could not equate it to any of her waking nightmares or to any sort of dream she had ever had because it felt like she woke up to someone, to something, and went back to bed after it left. It, it felt very equal to her. Okay. Um, as it was, we, we were staying in this maid's hot spot, and I do believe... Oh, this is the maid's room. room. So yes, this is maid. still the maid's room. This is that night, in the middle or, or very early morning of us staying in that room. So the maid we are doesn't... in the maid's room. So the maid doesn't carry a... Because, uh, you see, I got... 
I read the book and it was fantastic. And I really am a fan of the movie as well, The Shining. But uh, I guess it's probably biased my perception on this this ghost because the lady in the bathtub is based on the maid, right? Or am I totally off on that? Um, I'm not sure if the lady in the bathtub is based on the maid. I believe that was, I, I believe that's 119. And I think that okay. the maid's room and 119 are separate. Gotcha. Okay. So this is a totally separate, I'm, I'm putting multiple ghosts together in my head is the problem here. So I, I am not. The maid cleans up after you. She, she looks in on you while you're sleeping. She sounds extremely friendly. If this is the same ghost you were talking about before. Um. Yeah. It's, it's, it is the same room where I told you these, an, the, the stuffed animals, all of my massive, net bag of stuffed animals that I brought had been carefully displayed upon the ottoman at the foot of the bed, facing outwards, very carefully and cautiously displayed while the rest of the room was cleaned up. And that night we are staying in that same room where that had happened, literally the same day. day. And she sees this. She didn't feel threatened. She was, of course, a little bit spooked, but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily something bad or dark. It wasn't something that she felt like she had to fear or be truly cautious of. It was a very simple interaction of what's going on in here. A curiosity more than a threat. Yeah. Um, And she tells us this the next morning and she was incredibly adamant and very concerned about sharing it um, just because she didn't want to seem crazy. And from there, we pack up our stuff once again, and we move on to the next room since it is daylight sometime early in the morning, and we go to our next room, our next hot spot. Um, And that one, yes, and that one uh, was Mr. Lord Dunraven. So Lord Dunraven, he was, uh, I I believe that the the Torgal described him with these words of a... Lord Dunraven, while not inherently the worst kind of person, was a bit of a bastard. He was very, uh, very rowdy. He was very much a drinker. He was a a socialite. Um, He was a lord. He had the title of lord. It was his room. That was his suite. Lord Dunraven, that was where he stayed when he was at the Stanley. That was his place. And it was a very elegant, very well put together room with a mirrored ceiling, big closet, big bathroom. very Very Victorian. Yes, incredibly, incredibly Victorian. That is a very good way to describe that room, and I remember it. And we went to Lord Dunraven's room, and that is where we started to stay. And we, of course, explored it in the day, and we went out, of course, to, you know, look around more, continue on with our tours, continue talking to people, trying to, uh, me and my dad would try and go to different hot spots or different places in the building and try and record or take photos, videos, try and capture anything we could, just general exploring and investigating. Um, but we return to the room and run into my mom later, and we, we are in this room, and they go, okay, uh, how about we do a, a little bit of an experiment here? Let me tell you something about Lord Dunraven. In addition to being a rowdy kind of drunkard, very much a, a, a wealthy, luxurious lord in both his lifestyle and his personality, he was a very, very sexual creature. He was uh, even described both in life and the spirit of him left after he was, he was grabby, gropey. He was the type of, uh, he was not, he he was, he was very explicit in the most simple terms. And my dad 
when we were staying in that room was always a, a little strange. My dad was always just a little uneased by the room. He was never quite as comfortable as he was in the maid's room or being out in the hotel. A very slight, just tension, but only with him. I didn't feel it. My mom didn't feel it at all, but I could see my father in that room seeming more uncomfortable, a, a bit more angsty, a bit more on edge, but not was with me. It was bit. very clear. Yeah. It was not with me, not with my mother. This was a very happy trip, but he was unsettled, almost disturbed in this room. That, um, that, that makes sense. You know, the Lord doesn't like another man in his quarters. No, 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 no. He really didn't. He found and it's a very common thing, a very common um, a story piece of people who have been there and stayed in that room is Lord Dunraven does not like men. He sees them as competition. And especially if they have wives or um, younger right. daughters um, wants to steal your wife from. He, your, yeah, he, he, yeah. he wants he wants the women. He is all over that. And he want, he, he very much makes it an oppressive atmosphere for men, but he doesn't really mind children. He leaves the children alone, but the women um, very much are his attention uh, as a spirit and both in life and death. But what happened further is yes, while my mother didn't really experience that unease, my dad was a little bit unsettled. There was a time about midday where we're like, okay, we're going to try this out. And Hey mom, you're going to help us with this. My dad went into the closet in this room. It was a, it wasn't the biggest closet. It was a neat little square with shelves all the way up and down pretty much. And he went in there and he sat down and he asked questions. He recorded both in audio and a little bit of video, but he didn't get much except for a, a continuing feeling of growing unease and not being welcome. He didn't stay in that closet for very long. Um, and we were very quiet in the room outside and it was not a very big closet, but it had a lot of uh, stacked shelving that was, you know, full from door frame all the way around to door frame. It was shelf, 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 shelf. And there was random stuff that was left behind that was supposedly Lord Dunraven's possessions. There was, you know, a couple of things forgotten by other tenants, stuff that is just kind of there, little boxes, little things, huh. uh, nothing super serious or important, at least that I could think of or remember. Um, but my dad, he went into this closet. He didn't get much on audio recording other than the fact that he was very, very uncomfortable in there. Um, and he left rather quickly. Um, and he's like, all right, why don't we, uh, Hey, bud, how about you and me go get some lunch and get out of here for a little while? Cause I'm not feeling too hot. Cause he described that feeling of unease to me at that point, even though I was already picking up to it, he did in fact, come clean and explain to me what he was feeling when we went to leave and, uh, left well, that's my good. Mom. You get ver- verification oh. of, of it. That's, that's good. Yes. Yes. But we left my mom in the room and we said, Hey, you should try going into the closet and just recording for a bit. And my mom actually took it seriously after the event with the maid. She took it fairly seriously. She um, was wearing a, wearing a rather nice top with a lot of cleavage. Um, well, I'm thinking the Lord made your dad say that part. The Lord wanted your mom in the closet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, it'll make sense as I go into it here. Um, my mother went into this closet. She was dressed fairly nicely. She had uh, her nice necklace on, her nice silver necklace. She had her wedding ring on. She had a, a, another piece of jewelry, her toe ring as well. But she goes into this closet and she, you know, asks some questions, kind of talks to the darkness of the closet and is in there. 
And she didn't exactly feel threatened, but she was rather, rather uncomfortable and a little flustered throughout the experience. And she very, very much described to me and my, she described this to me and not to my dad because she didn't want to incite anything. I think she wasn't really comfortable talking about this specific part with him at the time, but with me, she later told me when I came back in the room and my dad was in the bathroom, she quietly told me, so while I was in there, I noticed a couple of weird things, kiddo. I felt somebody grab my left boob and I can't find my wedding ring. Oh no. And she kind of just sat there for a minute and thought about it. I was just like, that is a Randy Lord ghost, right? Yes. <laughs> Randy, that, that is the word I was looking for. Before. Super Randy, Randy, that guy. Very, very much described Lord Dunraven. And uh, as it turns out, she got a, uh, again, another, uh, another, almost a murmur or a sigh on audio recording. It wasn't a whole lot. It was very, very, very subtle, but it was there on recording. Just this sound that was not of her own. Her breathing was very distinct, very different. She was keeping the microphone close to her, but you could hear in the background this very soft, either murmur of something or this sigh. And couldn't help laughing just a little bit when he stole the ring. It it even could have been that because (laughs) that ring was gone for the rest of the day. That that ring was straight up gone until almost the next day. But again, she felt something grope her. And she was missing her ring. And we had an audio recording that captured something in the background that was not from her. So you said sigh twice. And I'm wondering if you did. Did you think it was the same sigh? You felt a sigh when you stopped playing the the piano Um, and you walked out of the room. Now you have a sigh when you leave the closet. It wasn't. It wasn't, and it wasn't while she left. It was while she was still in there. It was in the middle of this recording of her time in there because she was in there for about 10, 15 minutes, uh, much longer than my dad's five or so. But the sigh that I felt and that I actually experienced because I was not there in the closet, I did not experience that. But the sigh that I felt was very different. I can't really describe it. It almost felt as if the whole room or the building itself was happy with what was happened with what happened or or was proud in a way that's the what energy, it felt like for me in the fall shifted. um but yeah, for this the audio recording it was very much very much a sound or a sigh of someone else being in that closet and while i cannot really remember um exactly if she described any feelings with that it was definitely a, just a, a sound of something else it was not more of a feeling and very quiet. It was a distinct, there is something else creating a noise that should not be there. Right. While in the ballroom, it was a, it was more of a, more of a feeling in addition to that very quiet feeling of breath on the back of my wow. neck. That's yeah, wild. That's wild. All yes, right. We're, we're going to have to wrap it up and I will wrap up oh, Lord okay. Raven and move on to the next room. It comes into the night. Not much more happened that day, as far as I can remember. And we're sleeping um, in this room. And I didn't sleep super soundly. The reason why I didn't sleep super soundly was very, very different. It wasn't a paranormal experience. I had issues because the mirror, I've always had issues with, with mirrors. I've not, I, I'm not sure why in particular the mirror above the bed bothered me. 
And if that very well may be what started the fact that I cannot sleep if there is a mirror facing me these days. Like I, I stayed in a, in a house, uh, Jay and I stayed in this house at one point, there was a mirror in the room that I was staying in. I had to take it down off the wall because it faced the bed and I could not be comfortable or sleep with that. And uh, I had something very similar as a kid with this whole sprawling mirror above the bed in Lord Dunraven's room. And uh, of course, this is something that I learned later. There's only very specific reasons why you have a mirror above a bed. I believe uh, us as adults, we all understand that. You're a ghost yes, investigator. And, and from what you've taught us about Lord Dunraven, it makes a lot of sense that he had a mirror over his bed. It makes sense. It makes sense. It makes sense. And But yeah, the, when we were there and it went into it, I didn't sleep super soundly. I always had issues with the mirror. Um, I didn't really look at it. I can't really remember looking at it or, or seeing anything in it or anything specific except for I wasn't sleeping completely soundly like usual and that the mirror above me was bothering me that's all i can remember of that however the next day uh, or, or the morning rolls around and I, even at, in the night when i was waking up i could tell my dad was having a lot of troubles issue a lot of issues sleeping if not not being able to sleep at all in that room he was having a very very hard time and he was very tired the next day and somewhat somewhat emotional but nothing bad nothing like his usual you know none of his angry any of that but he was uh definitely a lot more i i suppose vulnerable after the lack of sleep and all that the next day and this well, was kind they of do, our... they break you down they weaken your spirit so they can get yeah in. yeah and it definitely makes sense them. for that room and for my dad having all this um it, it made sense of why but the next day comes around and this one is very very fuzzy for me up until the end um, I don't remember explicitly a lot of the things we were doing that day, except for it was the third and final day we were staying. We were staying in the King Suite. It was very nice. Um, the desk was very specifically preserved for King and kind of laminated and left at how he left it when he originally wrote The Shining there. It was very much a, a more of a, a more of a Shrine. museum piece compared yeah. to a hot spot like the other rooms we were staying in. It was staying in the King Suite for the sake of staying in the King Suite because it was it was freaking cool. The most that I remember about this day, up until the very specific point of the end of where we were actually preparing to leave, because it was very much a, a closing day. We were really trying to get our stuff together. We were starting to get ready to really leave. We weren't really going to be staying the night there, but we were spending the day in that room and having it as a home base just to you know be there. But it was about mid-afternoon or towards dinner time, my parents both went and saw the psychic I forget her name, but I tried to call her years later and she wouldn't talk to me. I, I tried to call her about a year or two ago and try and ask her some questions or try and set up, you know, me getting to see her. And she, um, I don't know if it was just because she was getting on in her years and she was having some medical problems and stuff like that, but she was very, very not wanting to talk to me later on here. But at the time when she was actually active as the uh, as the medium, as the psychic in the hotel with her own office, all that stuff there. The thing is, is I, I did actually, I, I specifically looked for her and I believe I found her name and her contact info on the current website for the Stanley. And I also called the front desk to double check this and ask about the time frame and who was there. Um, and they also put me in contact with her and a number, um, which I, I do have. And I did just send you the name and the number. This is something that I believe is at least public knowledge. 
she does exist though. She, she definitely does exist. And while she wouldn't talk to me as an adult about a year back now, back in the day, she was the psychic. People went to see her and ask her questions and they would visit her. She was a very important figure in the hotel, at least to a degree. But while most of that day is very fuzzy and not really a whole lot went on, I do remember just kind of hanging out and reading in this somewhat waiting room or just kind of outside of where her office was while my parents went in um, either separately or together into this back office space out of my sight, out of my mind. I was left by myself just reading my book. You know, they went and they talked to her, asked her questions, general things you would go to talk to a psychic about. And there was nothing, nothing really particularly profound other than she did warn my father that the path that he had been on and that he continued to go down would eventually kill him. And it, it did. And then my mother didn't get a whole lot for herself and was more concerned about me. And apparently what was said about me behind closed doors was that I'd be successful in my life and most likely in construction or something. And these are small details that are not as important, but what it leads up to from there is the final closing of this day where we are actually ready to go home. We are starting, we have our stuff together. We are actually going to leave and leaving is very specific from the Stanley hotel. You are meant to be cleansed. You, they do not want these spirits following you. They're a sage thing. They do a sage. Um, and as well as I believe that the madam also, um, she also came to uh, speak to the spirits to ask them to let go and release and also help you be able to truly release and let go of them as well. It was a very, very wow. profound thing. Like I said earlier with my father, there was always things and there was um, a barrier between me and my dad to an extent uh, as I was younger. Um, and as I grew older, that barrier became very different, but I was never while I was able to read my dad, I was never truly in his head. I didn't know much about his past. I did not see much of his true emotion beyond when he was angry or beyond when he was happy or, or proud of me or when it was just kind of a normal day. I didn't see any of that deep, deep, deep humanity that you normally would with someone except for in a few specific moments. And one of the first moment I ever had with my dad where I truly saw through all of his masks and into him was when we were preparing to leave. This is the one that really, really got me. This is the experience that really, really gave me my belief throughout my life. As we were preparing to leave, we are standing at the bottom of this grand stairwell, kind of in this little side hallway. The light is coming in through this window off on our side. And there's only a couple of people around, but my dad is standing up against this wall and I'm kind of standing up into the front side of him. And the, uh, the caretakers there, whoever was leading it, you know, letting that group go and removing and cleansing at the time, they were also, you know, they were speaking, taking point and all that. But my dad was um, separated to a degree. He was apart from the group. We were there. We were right there next to him, but separate. And even me, I wasn't right next to his side like I usually was. And he's just kind of standing there looking down at the floor. And he's standing there. And I, and I see him and I look over him at a, after a minute. And it took a minute. But suddenly the madam, she paused 
in the middle of her whole speech, of all of her things, in the middle of her saging, in the middle of everything, the normal cleanse and the normal showmanship they do for that kind of event. She stopped dead. And she looks over at my dad with this look and she's looking at him and everything falls quiet. Everybody goes dead silent. And I, I look at him and I start looking closer and I realize my dad is starting to sob. He's quiet. He's not making sound, but he is bawling, tears streaming down his face. And as he's standing there, I can see on the front of his shirt, down at the bottom, not just a little bit shorter, if not the same height that I, I was at that time as a kid, right there at his base of belly level, the bottom of his shirt, that end tail, that bottom of the shirt on the front side of his body, I could see the crumple, like something was clinging onto it and, and tugging. It was a wow. distinct grasp and gentle, very, very gentle, very slight, but you could see the indent in the clothes and the pulling away from the body and the way it just kept tugging and tugging and tugging. Wow. And my dad was bawling and the madam looks at him and he says, I, I cannot remember the name of the spirit that she said, um, but it was a little boy from the third floor. A little boy from the third floor was very, very attached to my father. And my dad was very much in tune and in touch with this spirit in this moment. Right then and there, I could see the tugging. I could see my dad sobbing. And the madam walks up to him and puts her hand on his shoulder and says, this boy cares about you. He wants to follow you. He wants to stay with you. I do not know why. He is not making sense of why, but he wants to stay with you. He wants to hold on to you, but you have to let go. And I am asking him also to let go. And it took a moment. But very slowly, my dad calmed down and stopped crying. And that tugging, that ever-present, just tug, 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 tug that I could see on his shirt that everyone in that room could see stopped. And like that, it was gone. And he, he kind of wiped his face and took a few deep breaths and had to turn away and kind of breathe for a minute. Um, but we, he, we came back to it and he said, she said, you have been released. You are clean. Please go ahead and leave now before you regain that attachment. Yeah. And so we did. And we, uh, we went on home. We didn't talk about it much. We did not talk about that moment much other than my dad describing to me the way that he could feel this, this, this touch on him, this slightly cold, but touch that was there and this tugging on his shirt and just this, this happy, feeling but so sad that he was leaving this pure sadness that he was going to leave and he knew he was leaving and the spirit that was attached to him knew he was going and all he could say was all i could think in that moment was i'm sorry i have to go and leave you here but i have to go i have to go and once cleansed we had our stuff together and we packed on up and we went on home and uh as far as I can remember, that is, that is, that's everything that um, I can remember. That, that's an amazing way for that to end, man. And especially when something like that happens in front of a crowd. It was and, with our own it's eyes. Verifiable, but by like a bunch of people see the same thing at the same time. It's so much harder to deny the reality of it. Very much so. It was a very profound moment. And, and something that it almost um, sounds like there was a real almost love bond between 
your dad and that that little boy's spirit like i mean most of the time when you hear something bonding with a human like that it's something demonic it's something bad bad but but this this was almost like they they bonded in you know the exact opposite way of that and it was really hard to let go because they you know there was it, it really does almost sound like instead of like that evil bond it's like a love bond it very much was that and i think um if i were to try and reflect or make any guesses or, or try and speculate at all i think this little boy this spirit knew a lot of the issues my dad had gone through and understood the pain that my father had on a deeper level that he didn't show that I didn't understand that I could not. There was something more that this spirit had that I did not in this time. And this spirit was very attached to my dad, not necessarily for itself. I can definitely say that it was not an attachment that necessarily seemed like this boy had to be with my dad for the sake of the boy. It felt like that boy was there trying to comfort my dad, trying to be attached to yeah. him and, and try and help him in a certain way. He, under, he understood his trauma him. and was was like trying to help him with it. It was something to that effect. I cannot say for certain. I cannot ask him again. But I would definitely say that this boy was attached to my dad in a very loving way and very much wanted to be <laughs> him for the sake of support. Bless you. Oh, that's, <laughs> yeah, I, bless I, you. On that note, because I wanted to cut in, how, if you don't mind me asking, because there is a theory that you're more in tune with what's happening. When did your father pass away compared to this story? Because sometimes you're more in tune with things as as you're closer to to pass if he's getting too personal just tell me no 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 it's not that i'm looking over at a uh, jay here for a minute brother what year was that do you remember 2017. was it 2017 what, did he die 2017 or was the funeral um funeral was 2018 he died 2017. 2017 yeah so 2017 is when he passed um, it was it was right towards the butt end of summer yeah. is when he passed away in 2017. So it was a good while after these happenings. Very much a good while after. Okay. And Did you ever feel like maybe something came home with you? I mean, it sounds like it was a really good thing that they did that ceremony. Yeah. Yeah. From Estes Park. No, I did not feel like anything came home with me. I don't think anything came home with my mom or my dad. Um, But that feeling, the way he felt, just the emotion that was being pressed onto him from that touch, that contact he was having with that spirit was definitely something that stuck with him um, in his mind, but not something as an actual attachment from the spirit due to that cleanse. Um, Yeah, that that really is a profound experience when it, it keeps that physical tugging yeah, it was it was a, it doing was, that. There's a lot yeah. of energy in that, you know. It and was. If we're so, talking about an energy based being, they're expending a lot of energy. Just don't go. That that that's a, that's an amazing story, man. Yeah. I mean, really, on the overall, every that whole story you just gave us is is true. I I had no idea what we were in for. I uh. You I just said you, never, you had a pretty crazy story from the Stanley. I didn't realize you did this whole like full on, like almost professional level ghost investigation there. It's it really was to that level to the point of we were really, truly trying to go to experience that, but also remain aloof, remain skeptical, try and actually get the evidence, not just going thinking, oh, we're going to see ghosts. 
we went trying to see if we could get evidence, if we could actually gain an understanding of something beyond ourselves. And I, I do believe that we did in a capacity. I think you accomplished that. Yeah. It really I, I sounds think like you that did. I was. Yeah. That's amazing, man. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this story, particularly since you've been hesitant to do so with people in the past. I know it's like kind of putting you on the spot here. How do you feel? Do you feel different now that you just voiced all that and really told it out loud to some people that, you know, you, know, you, you got a really good friend sitting next to you and you got a guy you kind of know talking to you and a guy you've never seen before tonight talking to you. Do you, it's a very good does, mix. That, do you feel in the moment right now that, that was this a relieving thing? Did this do something for you? Do you maybe feel a little bit different? Um, honestly, for me, it's very much, um, it's, 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 a, it's a mood lift. It's, I'm very happy to have shared this story, but also my memory is usually quite awful. But going into this, actually having the chance to talk about it and put it through piece by piece, because I remember it clear as day was a very, it's, it's enlightening and it is, it's relieving to really tell the story in its full truth and full capacity, because I have shared it um, with Jay or with friends before, but it's always been a, a, a short version, you know, short, sweet to the point and never really clear, very cluttered. Um, but putting right. it all together, not just for the sake of telling the story, but to actually have that in my head, to actually have memory unlocked is very important to me on a level that I wasn't really expecting. And I, for the last couple moments here, as I've been describing that I may or may not have been kind of having a weird little bit of, little bit of tears wanting to come up just, just a that's little. Totally natural, man. Up. That's great. That just means you're telling a good story. You're putting, you're really putting um, your all into it. That's amazing. But it is definitely, it's not something I could necessarily say. I would just say it feels good to truly have it put together both for my sake and for the sake of others and to be able to share an experience in a full capacity that I know someone else will listen to and perhaps share in. And that is uh, that, that that's important to me on a personal level. It is very, very nice to be here. And I thank you for allowing me to come and share this. Of course, absolutely. Thank you. And you know, uh, you, you are welcome to your thanks as well. It is. Of course, man. Right back at you. Right back at you. Wonderful to be able to just talk about it and, and truly share it in a way where I don't necessarily have to worry about not being believed or the skeptical is I can sure. very much just talk from my experience and, while I'm not sure what I truly believe or what someone else truly believes or what you may believe or anyone else who hears this may believe what I saw, what I was there for, what I experienced, being able to lay that down in a full capacity is powerful. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. That that's, that's just beautiful. And it, and you are a wonderful storyteller. I think anyone who listens to this is going to have a, a, a little bit of a deeper understanding of what goes on in places like the Stanley Hotel. It's genuinely a trip I would recommend for anyone, but I would say go with an objective mind ready to look at both sides. Be skeptical, but be optimistic. Be ready to actually try and experience things and really investigate for yourself and be willing to go off on your own and try and be in these places for yourself. Wow. 
Well done. I think that's a great way to end this portion of the interview. How about you? Yeah. Well, Tristan, thank you so much, man. We appreciate it. So there you go, everybody. Tristan's impressive account of his full-on ghost tour at the Stanley Hotel. It was powerful. Yeah. It really was. Yeah, great stuff, man. But uh, we do have a few more things we want to get into to kind of wrap everything up before we finish the Stanley Hotel saga. Yep. So the first thing I want to kind of wrap up was F.O. Stanley lived until 1940 when he died at the impressive age of 91. Mm-hmm. And this was after, as we have spoke of before, this was after a doctor told him he had a short time to live and he moved, Many years earlier, and he moved yeah. to Colorado. Decades. That was the early 1900s because oh. the Stanley Hotel was completed in 1909. Right. So he had to have been there for at least a few years, you would think, before yeah. that. So you're talking, I, I, I don't know the exact date, but you're, you know, the mid-1900, right. whatever, the aughts, I believe they called them in the 1900s. So my question is, did he live so long because of the crystals in the ground under the hotel? Oh, yeah. That, that energy that allows for all the ghosts and everything, is that like what was keeping him alive? Did that heal him from yeah. whatever it was that was ailing him? Yeah. That actually uh, that actually puts a bow on our little side trail. Yeah, and we did... And we can't. We don't want to go into it too much because we did do our whole crystal conversation in our side trail for episode twelve, mm-hmm. pre the last episode before this one. So if you do want to hear that whole breakdown, and it's in our members area at patreoncom slash tour join us for as little as five dollars a month, and it would really help us out keeping this podcast going. But just wanted to bring that up that whole crystal thing is is playing a much bigger part in this than I ever would have expected I guess is where I'm going with that yeah but uh you you had something you wanted to get into Moz well I wanted to bring us back to where we ended our little research where you know I because I, I don't think you've slept since you made the connection about Stanley yeah, dude, that that was definitely eating at me. Yeah, you're on a mission to find Batman, and I want to tell you how we found Colorado Vortex Batman just briefly. Yeah. Uh, so basically we have a, a, a millionaire of the time. He has a rocket car. He has a cave under his mansion. It all started to sound a little familiar. Yeah, just too on the nose. Yeah, and he does look like Alfred more than Batman, but he's also the tech guy, more like Morgan Freeman and the Christian Bale thing. So, we, and we, you know, and we, we kicked did, it around a little bit. We did discuss how Lord Dunraven could be the actual Batman, and he was the Alfred. Certainly right. was the Alfred. Yeah, he does definitely look like Alfred Pennyworth, yeah. certainly. And, and he was the innovator. He was the machine builder. He was the engineer tech guy, you know, which is the Alfred-y sort of role, especially the Morgan Freeman version of it, especially. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to get into the whole Stan Lee? At the well, Stan you, Lee? you, you took my research ball and you kind of ran with it. And usually yeah. he doesn't let me kick it out to the hedge mage. You know, <laughs> this was one of those roller coaster of emotion kind of research things that I did in the last day. So my concept was when we discovered the Colorado vortex Batman theory, 
my brain went to Stan Lee thinking of him as a creator of Batman. And I looked it up and Stan Lee was 18 when F.O. Stan Lee died at the Stanley. So my question was, did Stan Lee ever meet Stan Lee at the Stanley? Right. It's a good question. Like he'd be named after the guy. <laughs> but my comic book knowledge was lacking. Yeah, because he did like Stan Lee. And- Stan Lee is in a way a creator of Batman, but he he was a co-creator of a later version of Batman, mm-hmm. not the actual original Batman character. Right. So I was a little dejected at this point when I found this out. I thought my theory was dead, but I don't give up that easy. So I was like, oh, so who actually created the original Batman? So I looked that up. Also co-creators. One was Bob Kane who was a comic book guy. He was a comic book writer, animator, and artist. But then you have Milton Bill Finger, goes by Bill Finger, who was also a comic book guy, also got into television and stuff like that, big with DC. He was born in 1914 in Denver, Colorado. Whoa. That's F. just o. Stanley. It's a rocket right away. Lived until 1940 in Estes Park, which even in that day, like the rocket car did it in under two hours. That was impressive. Today, it's easy to do that in two hours. Yeah. So. Alfred's driving around in his rocket car. My theory is reborn. Mm -hmm. It's not as lyrically pleasing Mm -hmm. Bill Finger meeting Stanley at the Stanley rather than Stan Lee meeting Stanley at the Stanley. Right. But. Did he see this, you know, what in our time would be this billionaire guy driving his futuristic rocket car up to his isolated mansion outside the city with a cave system under it full of magical crystals? So Lord Dunraven is Batman and Oscar Freeland Stanley is Alfred. So even if... My thing is, even if you want to reject our actual Colorado Vortex Batman thing, mm-hmm. that they were actually... Because it's Batman. really a hypothesis at this point. Did he just like see this guy, this Driving rich around? guy with yeah. the mansion in, on the hill, yeah. with the caves under Underneath. it, driving a rocket car? And did that in and of itself just like, is that yeah. where Batman came from? Like Batman really might have been born yeah. out of the inspiration of F.O. Stanley. Whether he was really that Dude. guy or not, like he Colorado Vortex Batman really might be an origin story of the character. Yeah. Well, he left one piece out, and that's Denver. That's really close. That's exciting. I think it's solved. Let's just put it in the solved. Yeah. So I we're MythBusters. We have to just say solved. I think Bill Finger based Batman on F.O. Stanley. Or he factored in highly, or Fact, factored in highly. I an like inspiration. to think. He really was Batman. I mean, why do we stop at the at the river's edge? Sure, sure. Yeah. He, well, if if they really were of that dynamic, I I would believe that F.O. Stanley was Alfred and Lord Dunraven was Batman because Batman had the well, cave. That's what I right? said. Because Lord that? Dunraven owned the land. Right. Yeah. That's what I said. Yeah. But what if Catwoman is buried well, in that cemetery? The alternative is that it was really just an inspiration thing. And in that case, F.O. Stanley would be the inspiration of Batman Mm -hmm. because of the rocket car and the mansion and everything. Right. 
if they were actually, you know, old that, school Batman and yeah, they're fighting, Batman and Alfred. Yeah, yeah, like going out taking care of the bad guys in the hills yeah. so everything's safe. Mm-hmm. Then it's a Batman and Alfred sort of dynamic, I would imagine. Nice. That, those are my competing theories. Yeah, but Lord Dunraven did stay on as the billionaire playboy who's still harassing women. Yeah, and like he sold them the place, but he lived there forever still. Yeah. So. I don't know. Could get out of the bat cave. <laughs> can take the bat out of the bat cave, yeah, but you can't man. take the Batman out of the mansion. I think it's some solid theorizing about the true origin story in real life of Batman. There is one more chapter which is much older. Did you ever see the picture of Kamazots, the the Mayan folklore? Oh, the the yeah, the the Batman god from. Do you ever Mexico, see a yeah. picture? of the, like in the Popovu, what this thing looks like. I have already put together my Bat Squatch episode and oh. he's in there. So yes, I'm actually quite familiar with Kamazots at this point. But he looks, but there's a picture that he looks just like Batman. Like go yeah. Google it. Yeah, with the, the Yeah, the very the pointy ears, ears the, the mask, Yeah, everything. like everything about it looks just like Batman, yeah. He has a chin, so we know it's not Michael Keaton's version, you know. Yeah. So... But that's uh, that's the other one. Maybe it goes back even further. I mean, maybe the, maybe this trail just keeps going, you know, back in the You time. just like when things go back 20,000 years. Yeah, till, till <laughs> I'm right. The very, very, very yeah. beginning of the root of the thing. So it's so misty that I just say I'm right, I win, I get a beer. Yeah, that's the way we play. It's the way I play things. I want Cheat. a beer. Yeah, there you go. Let's do it. All right, let's get out of here and have a beer. Hopefully everybody enjoyed episode 13 here. Hey, can we give Mad Cujos to Tristan? Oh, that's right. We didn't do our Mad Cujos. And, of course, this week's Mad Cujos Award goes to our MVP, Tristan. Ah, Thank you. I think I forgot to do mine in Havana Syndrome. I have a makeup Mad Cujos Award to give out, I think. I don't know why I always forget that bit. You're very good at keeping me honest, though, Moz. That's good. All right, let's wrap it up here for... Lucky number 13 of the Monster Lore Tour. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Please check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Tour for the members area. We offer a bunch of extra stuff in there at this point. Otherwise, just real quick, give us a like, follow, share, all that good sort of stuff. Ring the bell, hit those good buttons, and help us out a little bit on the algorithms. That's really the biggest thing you can do for us at this point. Leave us some ratings and comments. That helps a lot, too. Appreciate whatever time you're willing to give us on that stuff. Till next week, have a good one, listener. Positiva, negativa, Negativa. like any way you look at it, we just balance each other, man. Yeah, except the imbalance part.